as we study your word tonight, Lord, that you would just cause it to come alive for each one of us, Lord, as we start this new series. We pray as your children that you would speak to us, Lord, and that we would take these things that we see in your word seriously. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Mario. Boy, it feels weird having her behind me like that. All right. Oh, good. I'm glad that you guys came tonight. Never knew what it was going to be like. You know, when we move upstairs, you wouldn't have coffee. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16? And I'm going to encourage you to tonight in, in our teaching that you would um, turn to the scriptures. You know, I was thinking of how I do things differently, I guess. I, I feel like when I'm teaching, I'm always pressed for time. I always feel like I have more to say than time to say it. And, um, and so I, I found myself over the years trying to make it really, really easy for you guys. And so a lot of times, you know, I'll just read the scripture and I'll... Uh, but I was thinking of how I'm kind of cheating you. I'm so thankful that when, as a young Christian, we started going to Calvary Chapel, Grass Valley, and we would turn to every scripture. And I'll tell you, there was this beautiful music of Bible pages turning from this text to that text. And I had no idea as we were doing it, because it was a challenge, you know, as a young Christian. Oh, where's that book at? And this type of thing. But I was being trained... um, to know where the books of the Bible were by by just simply, you know, turning to the text and everything. So I want to encourage you tonight to to turn to the text. We'll be going to a number of um, scriptures tonight. Tonight, our first study uh, on real discipleship and the tonight it's really an introduction But I also kind of want to build it around a question. And so the question that I present to you and I present to myself is, are you a real disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you a real disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, I know that most, if not all of you, would quickly say, of course I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, so therefore I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. But I want you to keep that question in mind as we go through the different scriptures tonight. Am I a real, am I a true disciple of Jesus Christ based upon what the scripture teaches? So, you know, the word disciple, it's used uh, 261 times in the 27 books of the New Testament. And the word disciple speaks of a learner. So a pupil, someone who's, who's um, sitting under a teaching or in the case of uh, Jesus, sitting under a teacher and learning from the teacher, a, a pupil. But it's much more than just a learner. I think that's where Christianity begins to break down for a lot of Christians because they kind of stop short of, 
I'm, I'm a learner. That's what I do. I go to church and I learn. I listen to the scriptures and I learn. I read my Bible. I do morning devotions. I go to women's study, men's study. I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. But of course, when you speak of a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're not speaking of one that just simply learns. You're speaking of one who follows Jesus. So there's the learning. So Jesus is teaching as he's teaching. And of course, as you go through the gospel accounts, it's apparent that Jesus was teaching all the time. Even when he wasn't speaking, he was teaching. By his actions, he was teaching his disciples. He was teaching his disciples um, what you know, love looks like and, and what uh, you know, uh, care for others looks like and, and uh, you know, the heart of Father looks like. I mean, he's, he's modeling all of these things to his disciples. And so they're watching these things. And then, of course, a comp- if it was just the things that he was doing, they would, they would be malnourished. But, of course, he would teach. He would do something, and then he would teach. And he was always seizing upon the opportunity to teach his disciples. He would teach the multitudes, but his main target was his disciples because he knew that the disciples will, would and will carry on the work of Christ. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's no longer here presently with us, you know, uh, but he surely is here. Whenever two or more are gathered in his name, he's with us in spirit. But, but there's this understanding that we carry the baton. Jesus has taught us. Jesus has set the example and he's now gone, and so as his disciples, we need to carry on what he's shown us, what he's taught us, and what his message is. Discipleship is a word that describes the process of maturing as a disciple. So again, a disciple, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you a learner of Jesus Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you under discipleship? A discipleship is not something you just do when you first get saved, but it's something that is a part of every true disciple's life until the day they go home to be with Jesus. Then there's no longer any need for learning because we will, we will know completely, you know. And so, Jesus. Jesus' disciples are called to a different belief system. Now, I know these things are elementary, and I know you guys know these things to be true. But this is so important, guys, because we live in a world that is, I mean, it's on steroids now, how fast things are racing in the opposite direction, opposed to God, opposed to his teaching, opposed to his character, opposed to his word. I mean, this is where we live. Just today, our president you know, signed a bill, you know, so that 13-year-old children that want to transgress or trans, uh, transition into another sex that they're identifying with, that they're going to do everything they can to help a child like that. It's, it's perverse. It is so perverse. And we live in such a twisted, perverse culture. And sadly, as goes the world, sadly, so goes the church many times. I remember at a pastor's conference, Damien Kyle was teaching, and he was teaching, and he says, you know, the church has always kept a distance. There's always been a gap. There's always been a distance from the world. 
um, you know, the world is here, the church is here. The, the, the church has kept that gap, and uh, they've been faithful to keep that gap. He says the problem is, is that the world is not, you know, standing still. The beliefs of the world are not standing still. They are progressing. They are moving forward to debauchery. And as long as the church continues to keep that same gap, we're going closer and closer to debauchery as well. We begin to embrace things and, you know, to condone things that, of course, the early church would never even think of condoning. It would never even enter into their mind the things that, uh, you know, modern-day Christians are dealing with. And, and sadly, modern-day Christians, or those who profess to be Christians, are endorsing and encouraging. So Jesus, he calls us to a different belief system. Uh, disciple, Jesus' Jesus' disciples are called to a different uh uh, different priorities, um, so we have a you know different worldview, or at least we should have a different worldview. Uh, different values, for example, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Uh, for a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are to value heaven over the earth. Isn't that what we see t- taught? Jesus tells us to store up. Treasures in heaven, for where your heart is, there or there where your treasures, there your heart will be also. And so, we are to value God more than self. And yet, what do we see taught in many churches? This whole self-esteem garbage. I mean, it is it is it's amazing that you know psychologists, psychiatrists, socialists, you know all the, all these different people with different mindsets, different belief systems. They've entered into the church. They're speaking from pulpits. And, and people have bought the lie. And many don't even know how to decipher between the word of God and, and pop psychology or what you know the, the world is teaching today. And so Jesus' disciples were recognized. Were recognized by certain characteristics. Were recognized by... Uh, as those who believe in him. Now, guys, um, you know, have you, maybe you've said it in the past, I'm sure you don't say it any longer, but I've met people who have said, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. It's a personal thing between me and the Lord. It's none of your business. It's a per- And you just, you look at them. If you're like me, you look at them and you think, I don't know that you do believe in the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible, it doesn't matter if it's Old Testament or New Testament, it's never this personal thing that you keep to yourself that you never talk about. The characteristic of a real disciple of Jesus Christ is one who believes in the Lord but also confesses the Lord. So he or she talks about the Lord. They want to talk about the Lord. You know the old saying, uh, what people love, they love to talk about? It's true. I mean, listen, listen to yourself. What do you like to talk about? Where do your conversations go? Um, is Jesus ever a part of that? Is the Lord ever a part of your conversation? A real disciple is one who confesses him. A real disciple is one who abides in his word, right? Isn't that what Jesus says? And if we're abiding in his word, then another characteristic of a real disciple of Jesus Christ is that you will bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, uh, fruit of the Spirit, 
the fruit of love, the fruit of um, obedience, the fruit of holiness, the, the, the fruit of purity. I mean, these would be kind of the outflow of the reality of an inward belief. So it's going to be manifested, and it will be manifested in our life. And of course, there's many other things that we could say that, you know, different things that would characterize a real disciple of Jesus Christ. So as a disciple, the scripture tells us that we're to make disciples. But I want us to look at Mark. So you're in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, and this is Mark's account of the Great Commission, and then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28, and we'll look at Matthew's account of the Great Commission. So look what it says, 16, Mark 16, 14. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he was risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So, a disciple is one who preaches the gospel. Um, You could turn to Matthew chapter 28 if you would. Now, guys, we don't make Christians, do we? We just simply do what we can do. We, We pray for people. We preach the gospel. We share the gospel with people. If they believe, then they will be saved, according to Jesus. If they don't believe, then they remain condemned. In Matthew's account of the Great Commission, look at verse 18, 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority, now remember this is after the resurrection. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go, therefore, and make disciples. So, the ministry of a disciple is to make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, how do we make disciples? Well, he tells us, teaching them... To observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So see, we we could protest, and some would be quick to say, well, this does not apply to us. This was spoken to the apostles. This was for the apostles. They were the ones who were to carry out the Great Commission. This has nothing to do with us. I don't agree. And the reason I don't agree is because in the text, Jesus says, uh, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Has the end of the age come? No. Are the apostles gone? Yes. Have they been gone for a long time? Yes. So the Great Commission, obviously, is a ministry, a task, if you will, um, that the Lord has given to his disciples. 
It wasn't just for the 11, but it's for every generation of Christians until Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back, our work will be done, and prayerfully we'll all hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But until then, we have a ministry. We have a task. Are you a real disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, if you turn to John's John. Gospel, John chapter 1. We're going to be here for a little bit here in John chapter 1. We know that the Pharisees had disciples. We see in the gospel accounts uh, an occasion where the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians came to Jesus. Do you remember Remember that? And uh, so we know that they had disciples. Um, John the Baptist had disciples. And, uh, in fact, two of his disciples became two of Jesus' disciples. Look at what it says here in John's Gospel, and verse, uh, we'll just pick it up in verse 35. In fact, in my Bible here, the little subtitle says, the first disciples. So, look what it says. Again, the next day, John, that's John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples. So he had more than two, but on this occasion, he had two with him. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now you say, Where's Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Remember he said that earlier in verse 29. So he says to these two, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? I like that. You know, what do you say? um, Where are you staying? Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour, about ten in the morning. And one of the two who heard was John. Heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Excuse me, I emphasized the wrong John. That's John the Baptist. Uh, who followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said to Simon, uh, or said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So we know that there was Andrew and there was John. There was, there was Andrew, the brother of Simon, or Peter, we know him best. And then there was John, the brother of James. Those were the two disciples of John the Baptist. They hear John say, behold the Lamb of God, and you know what? John's ministry was successful. Why? Because he was a forerunner of the Messiah. And when the Messiah calls, we're to make Jesus. Uh, We're not to make disciples unto ourselves. We're to make disciples of Christ. We make disciples of Christ by teaching them the teachings of Christ, all the things that Jesus taught. We, We point to Jesus. We point to his teaching, and eventually they'll move on from us. I think of uh, some of the men 
that discipled me, if you will, they kind of took me under their wing when I first got saved, in time, I kind of, in one sense, moved beyond them. And, I, and that's how it should be. You move beyond. If we're progressing, if we're growing, we're going to just kind of move beyond them. And, and hopefully our discipleship is not coming from another man or woman. It's coming from the Lord himself. So a true disciple is someone who is on the move. He's moving. She's moving. They're growing. A true disciple is one that will move. They'll move from curious to convinced to committed. From curious. Uh, and I was curious. I was curious about him. That kind of piqued my interest. I wanted to hear more about Jesus. He was presented different than what was presented in the Roman Catholic Church for me. The Roman Catholic Church, there were so many other people that were emphasized. Jesus was not the one that was emphasized most of the time. But in that particular rock opera, of course, Jesus was the main character. So that was curious. But if you stop at curious, you don't get very far. Um, Then you move to convinced. Convinced that Jesus is who he claims to be. Um, Of course, how does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by just watching a film or something like that. It's going to happen by hearing, sitting under his teaching. And listening and, and taking to heart the things that he, that he has to say. And so you move from curious about Jesus to convinced that Jesus is who he claims to be to finally, uh, uh, you know, convinced that Jesus is Lord. That's who he claims to be, that he is Lord. Convinced that his words are true. Convinced that, that what he says must, it needs to be obeyed. You're convinced And then you move from convinced to committed. A true disciple is one who is committed to Jesus. Are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? A true disciple is one who is committed to following Jesus. A true disciple is one who is committed to the Lord. Listen, to the Lord above all else. Because that's the allegiance that he demands. Above all else, Jesus is number one. A true disciple of Jesus Christ in their life, in his life, in her life, Jesus is number one. He's not an add-on to our life. He's not just our savior. He is our Lord. You understand what that means? He died, yes, he died, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our Savior. But he is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is the Master. Uh, Guys, in the scriptures, it's not an accident that Christians, that the believer, many times is referred to as a slave or a servant. Uh, That terminology is used because the Lord is the Master. So he's the Master, we're the servant. He's the one that, uh, you know, gives the marching orders. As the servants, we say, yes, Lord, you know, I'm going to be faithful to carry out your, your task. That's what a true disciple of Jesus Christ is. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is committed to the Lord above all things in good times and 
in bad times. I can't emphasize this enough. Because, you know, guys, if Jesus is just someone who makes us feel good or comforts our wounded heart or, or whatever, he's kind of like a, uh, you know, like salve to the hurt. Or, and, and he is those things. But if that's all he is to us, then I would suggest we're not truly his disciples. Because a disciple is someone who says, no, the Lord is my all in all. If I lose everything and I have Jesus, I have everything. I mean, isn't that what we see taught in the scriptures, guys? We see this taught in the scriptures. So John and Andrew, no doubt, were curious. When John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, they were curious. Curious enough to go and to ask Jesus where he was staying. And then as you follow the account, you see... You know, Peter, James, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they were no doubt curious when Jesus said, uh, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They were curious. Now remember, John tells us, and John gives us insight that the other gospel writers do not give us, that when Jesus asked the four to come and follow him, that was not the first time they met. You know, sometimes you read that and you go, oh, how spontaneous and how, it was spontaneous. But they had met before. John gives us the account of how they met. Andrew, he meets Jesus, spends some time with Jesus, immediately takes, goes to his brother and says, we found the Messiah. So Andrew had moved from curious to convinced. Um, and so he tells his brother Peter because he wants Peter, Simon, he wants Simon to meet Jesus, to come and see, to meet Jesus so that he could be convinced that this is, this is the Messiah. And, and so, again, we look at the disciples and we say, well, th- this is what they did, this is what we should do. Isn't this what you did and do as disciples? When I be- was born again, when I became a Christian, I mean, it was like, the, I don't know if it was the day, maybe it wasn't the day, but it was probably the week uh, that I received the Lord as my Lord and Savior, and I knew that it was real. I mean, I just, without a doubt, I knew that it was real. I immediately called my parents and told them about it. I immediately wrote letters to my friends, told them about it. I, I just started witnessing to my friends. I say called them or sent letters because we lived in Northern California, and, of course, all of our friends were down in Southern California, and so we had to communicate through letters or, or phone. And when we would go down to visit my parents, I would make, Tracy and I would make our stops. We would go to my friends, and I would tell them about Jesus. When they would come over to my parents' house, because my parents' house was kind of the the party house, you know, uh, that was the place where everyone would gather for the weekend and everything else, I'd talk about Jesus with my, my friends. Because if you believe, see, if you've moved from curious to convinced, then you want other people to partake of that, don't you? I mean, you know, guys, you, you don't want to hide a good thing, <laughs> you know. And, and you don't want to say, oh, no, this is just something personal, you know, it's a personal thing for me. No, 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 no. My life has been transformed. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I don't quite understand what's going on. I don't have the, 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 the scripture knowledge of what's really happening in my life. But I know this. There is a change that's taking place in my life. And so you 
began to tell people, and that's what Andrew did with his brother. And so you see this, this, this movement from curious to convinced. The four, they were curious. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Who would it be curious? Oh, let's go. I don't know what he means by this, but let's go. Let's go see what he has, he has for us. And obviously, they were convinced enough to see that Jesus was worthy of following because they did leave all to follow Jesus. So look at um, look at you're there in John's gospel. Look at verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. So what's happening here, guys? These guys, they move from curious to convinced. They're sharing with their friends. So he finds Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's almost funny, you know, when you, when you hear, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Who? <laughs> you know, because, of course, this meant nothing to Nathanael as he was hearing this. Jesus of Nazareth. A notorious city, okay? Jesus, common name. Son of Joseph? Who's Joseph? I, I don't even know who you're talking about, Philip. But I want you to know what's significant here, because, of course, John is writing this. He's not writing a first-hand account. He's not writing word for word what was, was spoken. He's simply giving the account after, long after it had taken place. And I think it's worth noting that he pointed out that Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about this Jesus. So that would pique your interest. Even if you, you thought, well, Jesus of Nazareth, I don't know who that is. Uh, Nazareth is not an impressive city. Jesus is not an impressive name. Joseph, I have no idea who he is. But the fact that he said Moses and the prophets wrote about him, they spoke about him, that would pique your interest. That would cause you to be curious at least. And so, uh, verse 46, And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he was honest. Anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. By the way, are you a disciple, a real disciple, a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Listen, you don't have to, I don't have to, we don't have to persuade people to believe. All we need to do is encourage people to come and see Jesus. How do we do that? Bringing them to the scriptures, teaching them all things that have been taught. When you introduce someone to the Jesus of the Bible, I think that more times than not, people will move from curious to convinced. If you're using the scriptures. If you're not using the scriptures, and sadly, you know, among many professing Christians... We put more weight in our own personal testimony of, you know, I was so bad, and I did this, and I did that, and then I got saved, and now I'm good, and, you know, and that has no weight. I mean, it really doesn't. That's just kind of the frame around the heart of the man. The Lord has changed my life. 
The Lord is the one who transformed. The Lord is the one who saved. How does he do that? And we're able to teach them the things that the scriptures declare. In verse 47, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. <laughs> and Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Do you think he was curious? How do you know me? You, 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 I've never met you. Who are you? You must be that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I don't know who you are. I mean, that's what he's asking, really. And he says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Don't you wonder what that was all about? I wonder. Of course, we don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But I wonder, was, was, was Nathaniel doing something under the fig tree? Was, was Nathaniel praying under the fig tree? Was Nathaniel cursing under the fig tree? Was, was Nathaniel, Nathaniel frustrated under the fig tree and saying, you know, you know I, there's no answers in this world. There's no answers in you know, my faith or whatever it might be. Who knows? I have no idea. But it was something significant. And it left an impact upon Nathaniel, and it caused Nathaniel to move from curious to convinced. And then Nathaniel said, How do you know me? And Jesus said to them, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Really? Was it that easy, Nathaniel? He was convinced. Because it was like, you couldn't have seen me from where you're at. You, you, this, something has happened here. It wasn't because you were hiding in the bushes and you saw me under the fig tree. There was something significant that was happening here. He says, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So he moves from curious, come and see. Okay, I'll come and see. At least I could do that. Come and see to convinced. He's convinced. He's convinced because Jesus said he saw him under the fig tree. John chapter 20. Jesus, of course, he's crucified on the third day. He rose from the dead just as he said he would, just as the scriptures declared he would. And he went in and he revealed himself to the apostles, to the disciples that were there. They were able to see the Lord in his resurrected state. But Thomas was not there. Remember the account? Verse 24 of Chapter 20, John. Now Thomas called the twin. Um, why was he called the twin? Well, why do you think he was called the twin? Probably had a twin, yeah. It's not a twin. You guys always think I'm setting you up. What I think is interesting is that we have no mention of his twin. Uh, was one of his... Was his twin a disciple of Jesus as well? We have no idea, you know. I think that that's interesting as well because we all have family members that though we are 
Um, we've moved from curious to convinced uh, in Jesus. We have people that have grown up in the same home that we've grown up in and same, in, you know, upbringing and everything, and they just don't believe. They just don't have faith. And it says, And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It doesn't even seem like he was curious at this point. I mean, you know, I don't care what you say. I, I, I won't believe until I see. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the door being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and put your, uh, and, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. So now he's curious, <laughs> and he moves quickly from curious to convinced. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You're the Lord. You're my God. So you weren't convinced before that, Thomas? Are you a real disciple of Jesus Christ? And of course, Jesus goes on and he talks about the importance of, uh, you know, believing without seeing and all. But we could identify with Thomas, can't we? Thomas, he moved from curious to convinced when he was able to reach his finger to put his hand. His response, my God, my Lord and my God, I am convinced. I'm convinced. Now, we are all aware of one of the 12. By the way, Jesus had many more disciples than 12. As you read the scriptures, we see that there were many who were identified as disciples. So they had put themselves to one degree or another under the teaching of Jesus, and they were following Jesus to one degree or another, and so they were referred to as disciples. But we know that from the 12, there was one that never moved from curious to convinced and truly never to the place of committed. And that was one that Jesus referred to as the son of perdition. He calls him the son of perdition in John chapter 17 and verse 12. Ironic, ironically, the same title that's given to the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3. Perdition, it means Ruin or loss, physical, spiritual, or eternal. He's a son of perdition. He's a son of loss. Are you a real disciple of Jesus Christ? You know, guys, just being around Jesus, being around Jesus doesn't make one a disciple of Jesus Christ because Judas was obviously not a real disciple of Jesus Christ. He was there. When Jesus sent the 12 out two by two, giving them authority over demons and, you know, such things and to heal and everything, he didn't say, hey, Judas, you need to stay home. Judas went out. Judas experienced these things. 
Um, Judas was able to experience everything. I mean, the, the majority of them experienced. We know that Peter, James, and John were singled out on three different occasions. Um, but, you know, Judas was there. He was able to see these things. Now, by the time you get to Pentecost, the 11, so Judas is gone, the 11 are all fully committed, right? So Peter gets up and he preaches. And as he's preaching and as he's correcting the crowd who are mockingly saying that the 120 that were gathered there in the upper room as the Holy Spirit came upon them with his power, that dunamis power, and they were speaking in languages that they had not learned and they were glorifying God in languages that they had not learned. And the mockers were saying that they were drunk. Peter, of course, he explains what was happening, and what does he do? He goes back to the Word of God. See, that a disciple always, he doesn't go back to experience. He doesn't say, well, let me, let me tell you about my experiences. No, he goes back to the Word of God. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so what do we see on the day of Pentecost? Well, we see many, <laughs> many multitudes of people moving from curious, because surely they were curious about what was happening. They knew this had to do with Jesus. They were curious about Jesus and what was taking place there. They had moved from curious to convinced. We're told that 3,000 souls were added to them that day. So, here we are today. (laughs) There are many people who would say, I am convinced that Jesus is Lord. I am convinced. But obviously there are few who are fully committed to following Jesus as Lord. Does that sound critical? Or can you, I mean, just look at the, the world in which we live. Look at the church in which we live. You know, guys, um, we, we have the endorsement of homosexuality in uh, most denominations and non-denominational churches. We have um, this kind of kingdom now theology that has influenced and, and has a very negative impact upon many believers today it's you know that we're just kind of the church we are going to infiltrate all areas of society uh, the government and the arts and all of this and we are going to make the earth uh, perfect and we're going to usher in the coming of the lord because we're going to we're going to create this environment that will be you know, pleasing to him, and then he'll he'll want to come back to the earth. And I'll tell you, we look and we say, boy, if that's if that's the truth, first of all, where's the scripture to back that up? Because I can't find one scripture that even hints to that. Nowhere does it say in the last days that things are going to become better and better and better. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that there will be great revivals breaking out in the last days. In fact, we're told just the opposite that there will be apostasy, 
There will be those who are apostate. They once supposedly held to a belief, and now they're departing from that belief. They no longer believe those things any longer. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing apostasy rampant in the church today. We see people in the church that, um, well, what's the new thing? Roe versus Wade, you know, the overturn of that. And so you've probably seen it. I've seen plenty of them, pastors that are lamenting over the fact that this right has been taken away from women and how sad this is and, and so on and so forth. And you think to yourself, how in the world can you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ and not honor life, not have this understanding of the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb because that's what's taught in the scriptures and and we're just seeing it it's it's rampant we 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 see it we see churches that have you know um, living word we don't teach the word but we're living word abundant life we're not really concerned of what the Bible says about abundant life. We want our best life now. Um, you know, uh, you know the uh, buzzword, community. Everything is community, community, community. The Bible doesn't say anything about community. The Bible says fellowship, having in common, sharing. The, the Bible teaches that Fellowship is impossible with a non-believer because what fellowship has a believer and a non-believer? You can have friendships, but you cannot have a biblical fellowship with a non-believer. See, this is what the Bible teaches. Oh, you know, you're splitting hairs. No, it's not splitting hairs. It's Bible. It's what the Bible teaches. And so, you know, the, the, this whole series, you know, real discipleship, we're not trying to yank anyone's chain. We're not trying to bum anyone out. But we're trying to really kind of shake, if we need to be shook, <laughs> out of a humdrum complacency. Because the fact of the matter is, believe it or not, Jesus is coming back. He's the one who told us he's coming back. He's the one who told us what to look for before he comes back. We're Seeing things happen on the earth. The, the earth cannot continue as it's going right now. It cannot continue in this state. There is an attack upon children. That should cause every one of us in this room to be irate. Are you aware? Do you see the attack upon children? Again, from the womb. I've listened to a, a number of black pastors rebuking, rebuking their black, you know, professing brothers and sisters who are, are just distraught over this federal, you know, decision about, you know, abortion. And they're rebuking their black brothers and sisters professing believers and saying what is wrong with you people you know you're you're do you understand how many black babies are aborted this is an attack upon black babies babies of color 
People say, oh no, a woman has a right, a woman has a right. A woman does have a right, and a man does have a right not to fornicate. And if you have sexual relations and a baby is a byproduct of that, then step up and to be the man and step up and to be the woman and to do the right thing. Whatever that looks like, the right thing is bringing that child to, you know, term, to life, and then adopting the child out if you don't want to raise the child, if you can't raise the child. But there is this, and this is what the Bible talks about, that in the last days, the human affection, the natural affection of human beings, not just believers, but humans in general, that it would be diminished. That a mother would not care for the baby in her womb any longer. You say, you know what? I don't buy that. I don't listen. The Bible says, David says, you you wove me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah, we see the same thing. This is a work of God. God's doing this from conception. From God's perspective, that's a living being, a child that has a soul. And so, you know, however you might want to wrap it or people want to wrap it, that's the fact of the matter. It's important that we're truly his disciples because there are many, there are many, and there are many in churches that are teaching other things. And if we're not truly his disciples, i.e., if we're not abiding in his word, we will not know what his word teaches, and you will listen to teachers rather than the Lord. Are you a disciple? Are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? I don't want you to be my disciple. And any pastor or spiritual leader that would want you to be their disciples, run. Run away. Because we're not called to be another man or another woman's disciple. We're called to be disciples of Christ. There are many who would say, I'm convinced that Jesus is the Lord, but there are a much smaller group of those who would say that they are show by their life that they are truly committed. Oh, gosh, I'm out of time. I thought I would have more time up here. Time is slower up here in the sanctuary. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 14? And verse 25 Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate or love less, you know, that's what that word means, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going to war Uh, against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him and and who, who comes against him 
with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciples. You read this and you almost say, Jesus, so you don't want people to be your disciples? No, he wants people to understand. He wants people to count the cost. He wants people to know up front what he expects of true disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you see, guys, it's, it's, it looks different, doesn't it? It looks different. What we see today and what we see in the scriptures, it, it's different. And, and, you know, and we can water it down in our own reasoning and we can listen to teachers that water it down and, well, actually what that meant and, you know, well, and we don't want to be extreme and everything in moderation and, and that type of thing, you know, don't be fanatical and, you know, a little bit of Jesus and, but you live in the world and if you're too heavenly minded, you won't be any earthly good and all of these types of sayings. And yet you cannot find a verse in the Bible to back that up. Jesus wants us to understand what he expects. He wants people to count the cost. <clears throat> because there will be a cost of being committed, a committed disciple. Guys, listen. There are things that a committed disciple of Jesus Christ goes through that the average churchgoer attendee knows nothing about. When people are faced with the cost of being a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, many times they turn away. Remember Demas? Paul wrote and he, he says, uh, Demas has forsaken me having loved this world. Come to me quickly, come. Bring my cloak, bring some parchment, you know. Demas has left me. Demas, we're told that his name means popular. He was popular in the world. There's, there is a difference between curious about Jesus and being convinced that Jesus is Lord. There is a big difference between admiring Jesus and really following Jesus. There's a huge difference between saying that you're convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and really being committed to Jesus as the way, the truth, the life. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Paul understood this. Paul wrote, I've been crucified with Christ. Was he? No. But spiritually, he says, I, I've, I've died with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul. He counted the cost. What was the cost? 
We hate you, Paul. We want you dead, Paul. Don't come around preaching Christ to us, Paul, you turncoat, you traitor. Who do you think you are? That came from the Jews. We don't trust you, Paul. Stay out of our churches, Paul. We don't know what you're up to, Paul. That came from the Gentiles. Do you know that um, Paul, in order to have been a Pharisee, and we know that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he would have been married. And yet we know that Paul was single when he wrote to the Corinthians because he makes mention of the fact that I wish that, you know, for the sake of, you know, the heartache and the concerns and all of this, as someone who's committing to Christ and committed to ministry and everything, it'd be better if you were single. And he refers to himself. And there's this question mark. You, you wonder, what happened to Paul's wife? You know, did she die before he came to Christ? What if she left when he came to Christ? What if she said, you know what, Saul? I loved you when you were a, when people would call you father when you'd walk down the street because you were a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, because you were a man of the law and all of that. I, 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 I enjoyed being your wife, but not any longer. You're a fool. We don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is that we've known Christian men and women over the years that are single because their spouse left them when they became committed disciples of Jesus Christ. So it's not this, you know, oh, that never happens. No, it does happen. Again, we have to look at Christianity in a broader way than just the bubble of the United States as well. Because we have brothers and sisters. Think of Muslims who come to faith in Christ. What happens to them? What about Hindus who come to faith in Christ? Do you know what happens to them? Their families have a funeral. They're dead. And if we're fortunate, we'll make them dead or her dead. You say, how could people be that way? How could they be so heartless? You know what I ask? How could people be so committed to Christ that it doesn't matter, that they've counted the cost, and they say, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it. Are you a real disciple of Jesus Christ? We're told that there are over 2 billion Christians in the world, 2 billion. The population is almost 8 billion. So you figure 6 billion people. You know, Jesus said the gate is narrow. <laughs> we said, yeah, whatever, you know. You don't even have half of the population who claims to be Christian. In the United States of America, we're told, though the stats are dropping radically, by the way, in the past two years, but we're told that 70 to 80% of the population of the United States are Christian. If that's true, why is our nation so perverse? God's judgment is on the United States of America right now. And I don't care if you agree or not. The Bible says that if 
a person, if an individual continues in their depravity, he will give them over to a depraved mind. Romans. That's what's happening. That's the only thing that makes sense. How you could have a president in the White House doing the things that he's doing. Dismantling the United States of America. Weakening us as a people, as a nation. Allowing the most perverse things to be endorsed and embraced and celebrated in the United States of America. And we're talking about a fraction of the population of the United States of America. And if you, if you listened to everything you, believe, you heard, you would, you would come to the conclusion that everyone must think this way. It's not true. They're a minority who have this perverse thing, who are attacking the children, who, who are, you know, man, when I was 13 years old, I didn't know how to make rational decisions. Surely not rational decisions about what sex I wanted to be. And I'm telling you, God, the one who says, Jesus, the one who says, suffer the little children to come unto me. If anyone causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble, it would be better if a millstone was hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea. That's what Jesus said. The Lord sees what's happening in our nation. We should be angry about these things. These things should keep us up at night. These things should cause us to drop to our knees in prayer and say, Lord, like Daniel did. You know, Daniel was the good guy. Daniel wasn't worshiping the false gods and all of these different things. But what did Daniel do? Daniel said, Lord, forgive us. Daniel's praying as if he was guilty for all the things that Israel had been doing. Judah, you know. Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. But Jesus said in this text in Luke, he said three times, cannot be my disciples. Are you a real disciple of Jesus Christ? Jesus says three things. Guys, listen, I don't care. You know, you shouldn't care what I have to say because I'm just a man. But when I'm reading the scriptures to you and I'm pointing out to you, Jesus said this. Jesus made these statements. Jesus said, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple. I would think if we were wise, we would give ear to what Jesus had to say rather than what a teacher has to say or a book has to you know, say or, or whatever it might be or what my own opinion about these things. Man, this isn't something to mess around with. This is something that we need to take seriously. When Jesus mentions the cross, and we've, we've seen this in Mark's gospel a few times, and he mentions it here in, in Luke, the Luke text that we just read. When he mentions the cross, he's emphasizing the importance of commitment. <laughs> You're not curious about cross. You're not convinced about cross. When a cross is involved, you're committed, right? Because one who's, you know, they have no rights. They've given up their rights. Anyway, I know that most of us sitting here, you know, we may, we may, I don't know, but we may never have to give up all to follow Jesus. You know, we, we live in a, a different 
land and I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have and I'm thankful that persecution has not come to the Christians in the United States as it has to other believers in other places. But I know that there have been people that have forsaken all to follow Jesus. They've forsaken family, they've forsaken parents, they've forsaken it's just it just kind of it's and and I think that we need to consider the words of Jesus. We need to count the cost because here's the thing if as a committed believer you have friends that don't want to hang out with you any longer. Are you going to stand firm with Christ? Or are you going to vacillate on your convictions? I mean, I can't even think about how horrible it would be. But if you were married to someone, but you're committed, and you're not playing around any longer, and you say, you know what? I'm going to church. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to go, and I want to be with my brothers and sisters. I want to study the Bible. It's not going to be hit and miss uh, for me. It seems like you always want to do something on Sundays. But as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. And I'm, I'm going to go to church on a regular basis. And the spouse says, you do that, that's going to create problems between you and I. Listen to me. The Christian psychologist today would say, focus on the marriage, that's the most important thing. Focus on the family, that's the most important thing. But what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? And this is where we have to wrestle with these things. We need to look at these things seriously and say, man, am I a true disciple of Jesus Christ? If I'm a true disciple of Jesus Christ, then I want to adhere to what Jesus said, not what this person says or that person says or this or that. Biblical discipleship looks so different than what we see today. I... We had, uh, in Grass Valley, our pastor had a friend that pastored a church in Los Angeles in Paramount, where Jim went to high school, Paramount. And Paramount, in time, became kind of a really rough area of Los Angeles. And the church um, had a chain-link fence around the parking lot and when the people would come in, it was a church of about 700 people. When the people would come in, they would lock the chain lake fence because people would steal cars or things from the cars. It's just that kind of area, rough area. And so my pastor, because he had family down in Long Beach, and, uh, and you know, we were living in Northern California, and and Mike, the pastor of the church in Paramount, wanted to come up to Northern California because it was, you know, so nice to get out of the city and everything. So they would switch off. They would have vacations, and they would kind of take their vacations. You know, <laughs> Mark would go down there and teach at his church, and Mike would come up to Grass Valley and teach at our church. And and I always liked it when Mike would come. He was uh, had this great big long beard before long beards were popular, you know, and, and uh, he used to kind of say that he was the um, cough drop guy, you know, those cough drop guys that used to have the, anyway, you'd have to be there. So, um, but I liked it when he would come because he would teach a different teaching at each service. 
And um, I was doing high school ministry, and so some of the high schoolers had not heard him, and I said, oh, you're going to enjoy uh, Pastor Mike. It, it's so good, you know. So I'm with the high schoolers, Tracy and I, high schoolers. We've got all the high schoolers around us in the sanctuary. Mike gets up, and he starts preaching. And it was a different type of preaching. And he kept saying over and over again, Aaron's in the pulpit. Aaron's in the pulpit. Aaron's in the pulpit. Where's Moses? Aaron's in the pulpit. Where's Moses? You know. And he just built upon this, build upon the build. Upon. And he was getting louder and louder. And it was just kind of different teaching of his. In fact, it caused quite a controversy in our church for a few weeks. But there was something he said as he was almost screaming it out. He says, when is the last time we've heard of people losing their wife because of Jesus? Or, you know, children, you know, not having a relationship with their parents because of Jesus. And he just kind of, you know, and it was just heavy. And it was, but I was sitting there, I'm listening to it. And as much as my flesh almost wanted to repel it and just say, no, no, no. We just, you know, family at all costs. And, and I'm, I'm a family guy. We, we've gone through a lot of difficult things, and we never stopped loving our family, ever. But he just, and, and I just, I'm sitting there, I'm listening to it, and I, and we had an elders meeting afterwards, and it was kind of a big deal. And some of the ladies were kind of emotional, and they were saying, because it was elders and their wives, and some of the, you know, this, this isn't the Jesus style, and this isn't, this isn't, this isn't. And our pastor, very calmly, he said, we might not have liked the delivery this morning, but men, he looked at the elders, is there anything he spoke that's not in the word? And we were silent. No, it's there. And he says, it's the truth of God's word. And it is offensive to us because many of us are not living, taking seriously the word of God. And, and we really need to be people that take seriously the word of God. Why do I believe what I believe? Am I truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? Listen, guys, there's a lot of people in a lot of churches that profess to be Christians. You know, I believe in Jesus, so therefore. But there is absolutely no fruit in their life. And I would say, if there's not fruit in our life, something's missing. And the fruit could be desire. That would be fruit. Desire. Desire to what? Desire to be close to the Lord. Desire, Lord, you know I'm shy. You know I, I don't talk I don't put my words together well. I don't know how to communicate. I don't know how to share the gospel. But Lord, I desire to do that. I want to do that. I, Lord, I'm praying for my loved one. I'm praying for my husband. I'm praying for my wife. And I have this desire. And I want to stand firm. And I'm not going to vacillate. And I'm not going to give in on those things. Because every time I do, I lose credibility with my unbelieving spouse. Because they just say, they're not the real. And I'm telling you, 
It's going to get harder. We need to be firm in our stance with Jesus and what the word of God says. We need to, guys. It's not going to become easier to follow Jesus. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. We don't know what's coming, but I'm telling you, something's coming, and it's probably coming very soon. And if we're not grounded in the word of God, if we're not asking ourselves, not that we have to wrestle with this on a daily basis, but to ask ourselves, Lord, help me. If I'm not where I should be, help me. If my, my, my thoughts are not where they should be, help me. If my, my attitude, my actions are not where they should be, help me, Lord. If I'm selfish with my time and my resources, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. And to be honest with the Lord. And to say, Lord, I want to be your disciple, whatever that looks like. So, Lord, help us to be people like that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.